I want you to join me tonight in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, there are certain messages that I've preached in the past where I got up in the, in the platform or the pulpit and I knew that within an hour I was going to offend half the congregation at least. And the last time I talked specifically on the subject of tongues, which I'm going to preach on tonight, um, was back uh, two years ago. And the name of this church was Meadow Baptist Church. And if you're new to the body of Christ or you're new to Christianity, let me tell you two words that don't go well together, and that's Baptist and tongues. It's just not always a good mix. And I learned some incredibly enriching and helpful and awesome theology uh, when I was in the Baptist denomination. I'm certainly not throwing stones at my, my Baptist roots. I am who I am in part because of the good work of dozens and dozens of uh, Baptist brothers and sisters that poured into me. Um, but I, as this is public knowledge, I, I disagree with the, the tendency for Baptist churches to disavow the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, that was one of the reasons why I felt the need to, in my own personal life, to, to, to begin to wean myself away from all denominationalism and just to find my identity in the Bible. And when, when that transaction began to take place in me personally, eventually that, that connected to the ministries that I was involved in. And of course, um, a couple of years ago, uh, well, actually it wasn't a couple of years ago. It feels like that. It was, uh, I don't know when it was. It's late on a Wednesday. But some time ago, we, we just said, let's just don't be denominational at all. Let's just be the church of the living God. Let's be the people of God. And let's welcome the Holy Spirit to bring our identity to the foray. And let's just, let's, let's identify and define ourselves just the way the Bible does, just the way that the Lord does. And so because of that, um, you never know what you're going to get. The, the tendency for religious, religiously spirited people is that they want to be comfortable with God. They, they want to be, feel safe with God. They in essence, and they would never say this, but it, it, they, they crave for God to be safe and predictable. I, I'm reminded what C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia concerning Aslan the lion, who was uh, a symbol of, of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. And I think Mr. and Mrs. Beaver were talking, and it may have been Lucy and Mr. Beaver, I don't know who it was, but it was two of the characters, and they were talking about Aslan. And, and one asked the other, Aslan, he's a lion? Is he altogether safe? And I think it was Mr. Beaver that said, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what we need to remember about God. In our terms of safety, in our terms of preserving our comfort, and that's kind of how we define safety, God will just mess stuff up for you. Because if your goal is to be comfortable, predictable, insulated, and safe, if that's your pursuit in life, don't become a Christian. Because God doesn't play that game. God calls us to go on adventure with him. God calls us to follow him in the advancement of the kingdom. And that brings all sorts of twists and turns in the plot, the story that he's writing about your life. I want to share part of my story with you before I get into 1 Corinthians 14 and talk to you about the gift of tongues. My parents divorced in 1978. I was in fourth grade. I was about nine years old. 
And I stayed with my dad. My sister and I stayed with my dad. My mom went, went off to find herself, was her words. And so my dad was raising us, but we'd spend the weekends with my mom. And as many of you might know, going through a divorce is an incredibly difficult thing. It was a, a dagger in both of my parents' heart. They didn't want it, but they felt like they had reached a place where they had no other choice. And so in that season, my mom really began to search for God. Now, we were typical southern suburbanites. We were at First Baptist of Atlanta, and then we moved further out in the suburbs. We were at Lilburn Alliance Church, and so I was a little bit of a denominational mutt, but when my parents separated, I think my mom was looking for something a little more spicy in the Christian world than what we were experiencing at FBC Atlanta. And so she took me and my sister one night to a Holy Ghost meeting at a Pentecostal church near the house she was living in. Now, all I had ever known was Charles Stanley and First Baptist of Atlanta. And I found myself in the 1970s in a holy roller Jesus Pentecostal church on a night. And there were probably about as many people in that church. The room was much smaller than this, but it was probably about this many people. And I remember one thing about the service. Uh, two things. I remember really intense music that I'd never heard in church before. And as a nine-year-old, I was just kind of stunned. It was much more lively than what I was used to. But then, I don't remember a sermon being preached, but I do remember an altar call. And I remember somebody, it may have been my mom or somebody else, but brought me up front and there was a line of us just stretched across the front, young and old and black and white. And I, I had to have been the youngest. And I remember that the pastor had a microphone and he was doing what we've all seen played out on TV and in churches before. He was doing the boom and the boom and just going down the line and people were boom, they were falling out one after another. Well, he came to me, I'm nine years old and I'm just sitting there like that. And, and he's looking at me and, he's, and, and he slows down and he begins to talk to me. I cannot tell you what he began to say, but his question was revolving, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I didn't know what even that meant, so I said, don't think so. And so automatically it was fresh meat. And the people crowded around me, and they all began to do something I'd never heard in my life. They began to pray in what I now know was tongues. And they did it loud, and they did it long, and I didn't understand it. And the response they got from me was, <laughs> and the tears began to flow, and it freaked me out. And that was my first experience and only experience with the phenomena of tongues until the year 2003, where as a Baptist pastor, freshly, for four months, I sat in my office at a time of prayer. The Holy Spirit entered my office, sovereignly baptized me, and for the first time in my life, I prayed in a tongue that I had never known before. I was not seeking the gift. I didn't even really appreciate the gift because I knew when it occurred, it was going to mess, it was going to pop my Baptist bubble. And indeed it did. The question is this, because in the room tonight are some that are extremely comfortable with the issue, the gift, the practice of praying in tongues or speaking prophetically in tongues. There are others who may be adamantly opposed to it, as I was for many, many years as a Christian in my mid to late 20s. I was opposed to the phenomena of tongues. I didn't believe in it, didn't think the Bible taught it. And then there are probably more that are in the middle. Jeff, I don't really practice the gift of tongues, but I'm certainly not against it 
but I don't think I've ever really experienced it, and I'm a little awkward about it. Now, my joy as a pastor is this. I get to love everybody equally, and whether you have spoken in tongues or against speaking in tongues or whether you're curious but cautious, that doesn't really matter to me. What I want to do as a pastor and a Bible teacher, I want to bring into the discussion this issue. What does the Bible say about tongues? That's what we need to know. Not what does this denomination say or this denomination say. God, what do you say in your word about tongues? And here's the reason why. This is the main reason why I think this issue is very important for us to discuss. Tongues are God's idea. Tongues was not the creation of some 1906 Azusa Street revival with a bunch of folks out in California that pulled out of their back pocket a never-before-heard-of idea. Tongues originated in the heart of God. Tongues are seen throughout the book of Acts in the epistles, and we find that the gift of tongues still has validity for today. In spite of my denominational upbringing, where I preached against tongues for several years, I realized at some point around the age of 27 The Bible does not say anywhere that tongues have ceased for today, nor any of the other gifts. And when I made that shift theologically, and I began to say, Lord, I repent of what I have taught. I repent of what I have believed. Lord, if that's valid, whatever you have for me, Lord, I want all that you have. And when I prayed that, I never thought I would get tongues. I never thought that that would be active in my life. But here we are many years later, and God had other ideas. And so it's my joy tonight to be able to share with you some truth about this very controversial gift. Now, I want to preface what I'm going to say tonight with a couple of things. The first of which is this. This won't be covered completely tonight. Tonight, I want to just kind of rehearse what I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about tongues in the book of Acts. And then I want to look at the issue of what what kind of practice does the gift of tongues have in the gathered local assembly? And that if God is willing, next Wednesday, I want to talk to you about what I believe is the most important facet of tongues, and that is an individual's private prayer language, and what place does that have in the individual Christian's life. And so we got a lot to talk about over the next couple of weeks, so listen carefully tonight, and let's get started. In 1 Corinthians 14, 6, Paul is writing, and he's been discussing the gift of tongues and prophecy, but I'm going to pick up at verse number 6. And the apostle says this, now brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle, that's the battle bugle, if it gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is unintelligible, How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret For if I pray in a tongue, this is important, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? 
I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, that's an unbeliever, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, as I'm reading those verses, I'm thinking, man, I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about that. But we would be here for about three weeks, so I'm not going to be able to talk about all of it, but there are some things that I think are crucial that we understand. Um, some of this is going to move in and out. At some points, I'm going to be trying to biblically reason with some of you that tongues are valid, as are all the spiritual gifts. So you're going to hear me at times sounding like I'm arguing with somebody. I'm just doing that trying to come against the stronghold of, of unbelief or bad teaching that has taught some that these gifts are no longer relevant. At other times, I'm going to be saying to those of you that are fluent in the gifts and this gift of tongues, hey, as you are exercising your gift, don't ever forget that the gifts that are given to us are not given to us as toys, but they're given to us as tools and those tools are not meant primarily for us to show off they are meant for they're not meant for us to show off at all they are meant for us to build up the body of Christ and then there's going to be some in the middle where I'm just going to try to take you a little further in your journey because if you're open but you're cautious I believe in the gifts but I don't know if I want to go there one of my desires is to say why don't you go a little further why don't you actually pursue this gift of tongues and see what God does in your life so at any given point, I may be talking to you or I may be talking to the person next to you, but let me start talking. Amen. Here we go. Let's start with the tongues in the book of Acts. Let's begin there. And some of this is going to be a little redundant because I shared some of these things just a couple of weeks ago as we began the book of Acts. But let's go there. There are three different times where tongues, as they emerge on the scene in the book of Acts, there's three different times in the book of Acts where they are referenced. The first one is in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Most of us know about that. This is the Jewish Christians and the manifestation of tongues. Now, rather than read all these passages, I'm going to encourage you with the references. Acts chapter chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, but the believers are gathered in the upper room. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the power to come. The power is the person of the Holy Spirit. He's coming, and he's coming with power. And when he comes in to baptize those early disciples, 120 of them, in the upper room, he's coming to baptize them with fire. All heaven breaks loose in that room. So they're in a prayer meeting, and they're praying in, in Hebrew or Aramaic, their natural language, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes in. Now this is what's amazing. It was supernatural. This is the thing that we have to really embrace. This is supernatural. God wasn't trying to be casual. God wasn't trying to be subtle. God wanted to put his mark on this. So when the Holy Spirit came, first of all, it was audible. The first thing that they noticed is they heard a sound like a wind, a roaring, mighty, rushing wind. It might have been similar to what a tornado sounds like when it's getting a little too close for comfort to your place. If you've ever had that experience, it's a, it's a terrifying, overwhelming sound. It makes you feel very small, but that was part of it. So it was an audible thing. And then the next thing you'll notice in Acts chapter 2 is that it was visible. This is, this is strange. We're going to come back to that word strange in a few moments, but this was strange. Literally, as the Holy Spirit was baptizing those 120 people, baptizing them, remember what Jesus said, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire. 
And so literally, there was some element of visible flame. It appeared as a flame. It may have been an actual flame or just some manifestation of the Spirit in some way that looked like a flame. All the details aren't given. It's not scientific. It's supernatural. Just let your mind unclench and just accept it. It was beyond the norm. But they saw flame dancing above one another's head. So it was audible. And then it was also visible, and ultimately it manifested, this gift manifests through the verbal. The Holy Spirit manifests through their vocal cords, through their tongues, between their teeth, out their mouths, and all of a sudden these early believers were speaking in languages they had never learned before. Now, Acts chapter 2 is very clear. The first instance of tongues being spoken were in known languages. The pilgrims were there for the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. He fills or baptizes all of those in the upper room. They spill out into the streets, and they are praising the Lord and magnifying the Lord in languages that were not their native languages. However, those languages were known by the pilgrims from different places that were there in the city for the feast. And so the crowd was saying, these Galileans, what in the world? How did they learn Mesopotamian? How did they learn a Cretan dialect? How did they learn to, to speak like the people from Phrygia? How did they learn these things? And so the phenomena was verbal. The people heard them speaking in languages that they themselves knew. Those folks don't know those languages. What is this? That's what they asked. They said, what does this mean? Now, that's the first instance. Now, let me give you something here. As a cessationist, and that's just a technical term for, for individuals that believe the gifts have ceased. Cessation just means they believe the gifts passed off the scene around the time of the end of the first century. And I used to be one of those guys. I was taught that, and then I taught others that. And here's what I was taught that if tongues were valid today, they would look exactly like they did in Acts chapter 2. If the Holy Spirit is doing that work today, how come all those tongue-talking people, how come there's no roaring wind? How come there's no mighty sound? How come there's no fire dancing above their head? That's hogwash. If it's the same God who never changes, how come it doesn't look like it did in Acts chapter 2? Well, it's very interesting to me that the next two times the Holy Spirit does a similar work in Acts chapter number 10 and Acts chapter number 19, None of them look the same. None of them look the same. And so the argument that because tongues doesn't always look like it did in Acts chapter 2, therefore it can't be valid, is a, a thesis, it's a, a position that even the scriptures don't support. So let's take a look at that. In Acts chapter number 10, here comes the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon Gentile believers. Now, this is probably five years after Pentecost. It's eight chapters later, probably somewhere around five years later. And here's the scenario, and I'll get to where it's described in just a moment. But here's the scenario. Peter has been dispatched by God. Peter's a good, kosher Jewish Christian. Peter doesn't hang out with Gentiles. He's still got a lot of Hebrew tradition in him. And their law told them, don't go in under the Gentiles. The Gentiles are unclean. The goyim are terrible, horrible people. Don't go to them. So there's a lot of hostility racially and religiously between Jews and Gentiles. And yet God gives Peter a vision. Here we go, supernatural again. God Almighty sends a vision to Peter three times. Peter was so stubborn in his beliefs that God had to send the same vision three times. And the vision was telling Peter, go in unto the unclean. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at Peter's door. There's some Gentiles there saying, hey, our, our, our leader wants to hear this gospel. He received a vision saying, come get you, and you'd come and tell us what God has put on your heart. 
So Peter travels with some companions, goes up to the house of a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a centurion. He's a Roman official. He's a soldier. And so as Peter and his Jewish entourage come into Cornelius' house, it's incredibly awkward. I mean, you think racial tension in the South is high now. It doesn't compare with the Jew-Gentile conflict of the first century. It blows away anything any of us experience. So it's awkward. There's probably some intimidation. And Peter walks in, and he opens up his lovely sermon by saying this, you know I really don't want to be here. You can read it yourself. Acts chapter 10, you know how it's unlawful for me, a Jew, to be in the house of a Gentile. But God has shown me clearly that I need to come to y'all and not call you unclean or common. So I'm here to tell you what God has put on my heart. It wasn't exactly a love-saturated beginning to his sermon. So Peter begins to tell them the gospel. And before Peter can get into his second point, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile believers. And he falls on them in the middle of the sermon. And, and what happens is amazing. These Gentiles began to worship the Lord, the God of the Jews, in tongues. They begin to worship and they begin to speak in tongues. And the Jewish believers, Peter's and, Peter and his guys, are stunned. They're blown away because they're recognizing in that moment that God Almighty has given the same gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to those that were formerly outcast, to the Gentiles. So let me give you the description of this. This note will be up on your screen. Here's the description. In manifesting to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is described as sovereignly falling on them during Peter's sermon. Spontaneously resulted in tongues and praise of the God of the Jews. Now watch this. This occurred prior to their water baptism. And this is very interesting to me. There was no wind... There was no roar, there were no flames, there was no prayer to receive any kind of spiritual gift, and there was no laying on of the hands of the apostles. It was a complete, sovereign baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm so glad that's in my Bible, because let me testify here for a moment. In 2003, I promise you this, prior to probably 1978, from 78 to 2003, I, I'm almost positive I never heard anybody speak in tongues. From that time in that church service as a young boy to the time where the Holy Spirit moved into my office, I had never heard anybody speak in tongues that I can remember. I did not know what it was like. I was not asking God in particular for that gift. And as a matter of fact, that's probably, if I was being honest at that time, the gift that I definitely didn't want. Now, I was praying bold prayers, God, give me whatever you want. But secretly, I was like, please don't do that one, though. Because there was literally a man in our church at that time who had written a gospel track about tongues being equivalent to demonic possession. They were in a track rack 50 yards from my office, and God had the sovereign loving audacity to find me in my office and sovereignly baptize me. I went from praying in English in one syllable to praying in infantile tongues in the next syllable, and quite frankly, it startled me, and I, I just stopped. And I've given this testimony before, so I'm not going to prolong it. But then because of that awkwardness and that, that I was like, I didn't know what to do. And I, I just had a sense of reverence to the Lord. So I tried to get it back into gear in English and boom, it happened again. And I literally quit praying that morning. I just said, I'm, I'm and, and in Jesus name, amen. And I'm sorry. That was basically it. I didn't know what to do. I'd never been around that before. I didn't, I'd been taught my whole Baptist life that that was wrong and potentially demonic. So it rattled me. And yet as I got up and walked out of my office, I realized 
that was not unholy. There was something good because preceding the tongues was the deepest joy I'd ever felt in my life up to that point. It was a bubbling from within. It was those springs of water that were beginning to come out. So the next morning, I've told this story before, the next morning I came in, I was a little overly cautious about what was going to happen, and I thought, well, I, I just won't let that happen again. Have you ever tried to stop God from doing what God wanted to do? Yeah, you're like, oh, for a thousand in that, amen? And so, again, the same thing repeated, but this time I intentionally hardened my heart. I said, Lord, I can't do this. I knew it was from him by that point. But I said, Lord, I, I can't do this. Lord, you may not know this. I'm a Baptist pastor. <laughs> we don't do that. And in God's grace and mercy, and he's such a kind father when we make foolish decisions and bad mistakes, he never walks away. But he did say, if you don't want to, then you won't, and that's okay. And about two and a half years later, when I reached a level of brokenness in life and ministry, wrestling with my own heart, wrestling as a husband and a dad, broken before the Lord, knowing I couldn't go any further in my own strength, I came to a fresh level of surrender, and it was in that short season of fresh surrender where, where the Lord reintroduced me to that gift, and it's been a part of my life ever since that. That was about 2000 and late 2005. Now, why do I tell you that? Because in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10, there was a sovereign move of God, but that's not the only way that he operates. It's not always a sovereign move of God. Sometimes, Acts chapter 19, and that's where we're going in a moment, sometimes God says, I'm going to surround you with people who know about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to bring people into your life that love you, care about you, have tasted of this good gift, have found that fire of the Holy Spirit. They understand the dynamics and the phenomena and the gift of, of, of tongues, and I'm going to bring them into your life, and they're going to help you. Now, I want you to look with me in Acts chapter number 19, and let's take a look at this. And this is where Ephesian believers, this is, believe it or not, probably 20 years after Pentecost. 20 years after Pentecost, two decades, and we have in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, let me give you how it's described. It's described with a group of men, there were a dozen of them, 12 men with elementary understanding about the gospel of Jesus. They were not deep disciples, they had a very vague understanding about the gospel. They had never, by their own testimony in Acts 19, they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized in water, they had been water baptized prior to what was about to happen here. Now, watch this. The Holy Spirit comes in their encounter with Paul. Paul asked them, have you ever received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't know what the Holy Spirit is. Paul said, come here. And, and Paul lays his hands on them. Just a Christian, yes, an apostle, but he lays his hands on them. And through the human impartation, the gift of tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit falls on these Ephesian believers. And what's cool here is not only did they speak in tongues, but this is the only instance where you see something like this happening where they also began to prophesy. And so in an instant, they went from, watch this, they went from being, if anything, very elementarily, uh, very on a small level, educated believers. They barely knew enough about Jesus. I think they were probably saved, but they had never been filled. And 10 seconds later, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. So why do I bother saying this? Now, let me give you a note, because again, I want to highlight the differences. Again, 
in, in Ephesus in Acts 19, there was no wind. Again, no wind. Acts chapter 2, wind. Acts chapter 2, a roar. Acts chapter 2, flames. Acts chapter 10 and 19, none of that. And tongues was activated in Acts 19 through the laying on of Paul's hands. That didn't happen in Acts 2. It didn't happen in Acts 10. And so what we're seeing is this. We need to allow the idea that God reserves the right to be creative in how he works. We need to allow that just to be a general rule in the kingdom. God may choose to work in your life differently than he works in another's life. And if we are looking for a formula to be repeated, if we are trying to, okay, I, I need to get in an upper room. I need 119 other people. We need, matter of fact, we need to go to Jerusalem because that's where they did in Acts chapter 2. And we need to just wait there and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And you can wait until the cows come home and it may never happen like that. Or then you can say, okay, well, we just need to get, get somebody, some anointed preacher into our house. And in the middle of the sermon, we just need to get ready because the Holy Spirit's going to fall and we're going to be sovereignly baptized. It may never happen. There's going to be times where the Lord may not come and sovereignly find you on your own. He may call some of you to step up by faith and say, I don't know nothing about the Holy Spirit. I don't know nothing about tongues. But I've heard tonight in Acts chapter 19, there was an ancient group of a dozen men that didn't know any of that either. And God, through the impartation of the Apostle Paul, brought them fully into a dynamic of the Holy Spirit that they had never known of before. It takes faith, friends. All of the gifts are exercised by faith. That's one of the things that we need to know. I think there is, yeah, I'm going to mine this out for a second here, really sense this. There is this erroneous understanding that God is always obligated to come and sovereignly possess us, and he's just going to rattle us to the point, he's going to shake those tongues out, and and we're going to be a tongue-talking charismatic. And that's not the way it has to work. That, it may work that way, but more often than not, this is what I've seen. God surrounds people with Christians who are mature in the faith. Not every person that speaks in tongues, by the way, is mature in the faith. That's proved out by this very book that we're studying, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 14 especially. But some of those that speak in tongues are, and they, they want you to experience the joy, the thrill, the power, and the strengthening effect of the gift of tongues. And so God may say, I want you to listen to them, to trust them. And there is the actual biblical validation that tongues can be activated in your life through the laying on of hands. I'll give you a for instance. Um, everybody in my family has received that initial baptism of the Holy Spirit and have spoken in tongues. Um, my wife was sovereignly baptized, sitting in the van, listening to worship music while me and the kids were at a rock quarry. I got back in the van, and she goes, well, you're not going to guess what happened. I was like, what's going on? Did I leave the car in neutral? Did you roll? I was scared. She's like, I'm just sitting here worshiping the Lord. And she said, tongues. <laughs> That's my wife. Just no fanfare. Tongues. And... So, and, and I'll just be honest with you, that's not something Amy will probably ever share. She doesn't care that I share, but she's not going to be walking around here saying, you know, she's not going to be doing that kind of stuff. That's not her style. That's Landon's style. <laughs> now, Landon was very different. It was the first service night, I think the second one we ever had. He was 10 years old. 
And I don't know why Dustin felt led to, but Dustin felt, I was so happy, but I did not even have, I'd been talking to my son about tongues. He had been asking God to activate that gift in his life, but he was probably waiting for that sovereign zap because he had heard his dad's testimony. Dustin felt drawn of the Holy Spirit to go over to Landon and say, Landon, have, have you received your prayer language? No, Pastor Dustin, I haven't. Would you like to? Yes, Pastor Dustin, I would. Well, Landon, I'm just going to pray for you, and then I'm going to lay my hands on you, and by faith, I want you to pray in tongues. And so I'm just standing there watching this, saying, wow, this is great, this is great. And I watch Pastor Dustin lay his hands on my son, 10 years old, and I watch my son, by faith, open his mouth. You, you, you actually have to open your mouth at some point. You, you actually have to begin to speak. And, and so that is an instance of faith. It is humbling. It's humbling. Because you're like, I don't know how to do this. That's right. You just begin and God will give you everything that you're asking for. And I watched my son that night did it. And do you know what he did about five minutes later? He had the mic on the thirst service. I'm not kidding. Was anybody there that night? Does anybody remember that? There was a handful of you that were there. And Landon said, as I was praying tonight, God gave me a vision of the return of Jesus Christ coming. He's 10 years old, coming in on a white horse and coming back to rule the world. And I'm like, yeah, come on. Alicia was a year later this past summer at camp. She's my thinker. She is my more complex. She is very reserved, very introverted. She was struggling because little brother had spoken in tongues, and mama had spoken in tongues, and daddy speaks in tongues, and she was feeling like, what's wrong with me? She's a very complicated thinker. So she had a lot of blockades in the mind. And so we're at camp, and I'm praying over her just in general as a dad, and Pastor Christopher comes over there. Alicia, you've been wrestling with this thing long enough. And in the name of Jesus tonight, I want you to have faith that God's going to give you this gift. And Alicia was all introverted and nervous and self-aware. I mean, she is really kind of freaking out. And thank God for a type A choleric pastor, Christopher, who said, knock that off and just go ahead and praise the Lord in tongues. And he lays his hand on her. And sure enough, she was telling me this last night. She said, Daddy, if he hadn't come at me forcefully like that, I would have looked for the first opportunity to leave the room and I never would have come back. But, but there was an impartation. Now, friends, why do I bother telling these stories? It's not for entertainment. Because I know some of you are just kind of in that awkward place of, should I, shouldn't I? Do I want to? Do I not want to? If I'm going to do it, I want to fully understand it. And you're very much kind of moving in and out of that, that difficulty. It's not primarily an intellectual exercise. And this is what I want to get to. I don't even know if I have enough time to get through my second point. Yeah, I do. All right, so let's just move down into the second point and the final point tonight. Let's talk about tongues in the gathered church at Corinth because this is going to help us see some of the nuances of tongues and help you to realize it's okay to feel awkward with it. What's not okay is these two responses, to deny it without studying it. Because I'm going to tell you, if you just let your Bible teach you, your Bible has an amazing way of correcting all your bad theology. If you'll just get your theology from the Bible and let your Bible speak plainly. So it's okay to say, I'm not sure, but it's not okay to say, I don't believe in it and I'm not even going to study it out. That's being intellectually dishonest. That's being spiritually immature. You have to be able to study this thing because you want to know what's true and you want to do what's true. And this is a debated area. So let me give you this clarifying word about tongues. Um, the purpose of speaking in tongues is threefold. It's manifested in three things primarily. It is manifested in prayer, praise, and proclamation. If you'll remember those three major purposes of tongues, prayer, 
praise and proclamation. We'll talk about praise at a different time. We're talking, may, may touch on it tonight. But prayer is simply this. Matter of fact, look right there in the notes. Look in, look in for, verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 2. And let me just let you off the hook here. I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge something. Tongues are strange. Just go ahead and say that with me. Tongues are strange. They're strange. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, friends, listen. Let's just reason our way through this this incredible verse here. If I'm not talking to you, but I am talking to God, what is that called? What is talking to God called? Prayer. And so we are now seeing right here the one who speaks in a tongue at times is not talking to people. He or she is talking to God. So we talk to God in tongues. That is an aspect of tongues, praying in tongues. When you hear people talk about praying in tongues, remember, it's not reasonable. It doesn't make intellectual sense. It's not something that you're going to say, oh, yeah, I I completely get it. The Bible says right here, when you do that, you are uttering mysteries in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see it gets even deeper here in a minute. But, But praying in the Spirit is one of the manifestations of tongues. The other part Paul will talk about later in this chapter is singing in the Spirit. And so that's praise. You can literally praise the Lord in the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest things to, to do is just at time to walk around, and, and you, this can happen as you get more fluid in tongues. You're just singing in the Spirit. You're singing in tongues. You're worshiping in tongues. That's some of the most rich and meaningful worship that you can offer. And then there is the other, the third aspect. You got prayer, you got praise, and you got proclamation. And in the gathered church, when we're gathered together right here, the gift of tongues is exercised in a prophetic way. The, the, when a tongue comes to a gathered assembly, you're going to find out that the Scripture teaches it needs to be interpreted. And so it's not about 15 people standing up and, and speaking in tongues and sitting back down. That, that's an illegal use of tongues in the gathered church. Let me just go ahead and say that. That's not what the, the, the Scriptures instruct us. But when a tongue is interpreted, it serves with the same impact as a prophetic word. It is just an added level of spiritual mystery to it. So when we talked about uh, prophecy for the last couple of weeks, there is a prophetic tongue where somebody may have a tongue and that person stands up and that would be a person that has permission. That is a person that is recognized in the church. And, and, and listen, we will not let that kind of stuff get out of hand here because there's a lot of people who think they got a, a word in tongues every time the church meets and that's not the case. But when it is functioning properly, that person will stand up and give a tongue. Another person with the gift of interpretation will stand up and give the interpretation of it, and it serves as a prophetic word. Now, we're not dealing with that aspect too much of it here tonight. By the way, just curious, how many of you have seen the active use of that prophetic aspect of tongues in a church with tongue and interpretation? Look all around you. You're going to be amazed. I have never seen it. I've never been in a service where somebody stands up, gives a tongue, and that tongue is interpreted, and it serves as an edifying prophetic word. I've actually never seen that. Uh, I'll ask this. Why not? Does anybody here know that they have the gift of interpreting tongues? Has anybody been exercised that? Anybody at all? I'm not going to ask you to do it tonight. I'm just curious. I don't, I don't see anybody's hands. I don't have that gift either. I know a man, an old man, who teaches at a Baptist seminary, of all things. 
and he is gifted in the interpretation of tongues. Nobody that he works with, I'm not even going to tell you the name of the seminary, nobody at the seminary, the deans, they don't know he's a tongue-talking charismatic who interprets tongues, and he's one of the deans of the, or one of the professors of theology at that, but people call him around the nation. They say, we've got a burning tongue. Would you mind if I gave the tongue and you gave the interpretation? It's an amazing gift. Here's the thing. It can be confusing. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to give you something here. You, whether you know it or not, you and I are products of a post-enlightenment generation. The year is probably somewhere around 1685, winding up in the, around the year 1815, somewhere between 815 and 820. It's known as the Age of Enlightenment. And during that time, there was great intellectual advancement. And during that 100-plus years, the, the prevailing attitude was, if, it, if a thing cannot be scientifically explained, if it cannot be reasoned through, if it cannot be intellectually grasped, then it has no value, cast it aside, throw it away. And that kind of thinking permeated the church to the point where all supernatural elements of the church were then, from that point forward, in the mid-1600s to late 1600s, up until the present day, that there are Christians who are now the products of generations of post-enlightenment thinking, and that thinking has taught their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, all the way down the line, that's taught them this. If you can't explain it, don't pay attention to it. Explain God. You can't explain God. You can't explain the kingdom. You can't explain the power, the love, the grace, the mercy of God. There's most of the Christian life is not meant to be dissected, systematized, and explained. Christianity is the form of thought and truth that brings you into a living relationship with a living Savior. He's not a subject to be studied primarily. He's a Lord to bow before. And so what happens is if we are now in a, in a generation where large segments of the church have said, we'll just keep it to tongues. Well, tongues makes no sense. That's not reasonable. Why would I speak in a language I don't understand? Why would I risk looking silly? Why would I go through the awkwardness? Why would I do that when I, I'm perfectly verbose in my native language and God speaks that language too? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because the Bible says that we're to pursue all the spiritual gifts. And the Apostle Paul says in here, I want you all to speak in tongues. That's in your Bible. And so if I'm going to be a Bible believer, at the very least, I need to acknowledge that I have no right to say, I'm going to ignore tongues until I go home to be with Jesus. Because the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote, I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, we don't have the ability to say, well, yeah, that was for Corinth. Well, what else was for Corinth? What about the verses on not fornicating? Was that just for Corinth? What about the verses on giving? Was that just for Corinth? What about the, all the verses about uh, heterosexuality and homosexuality? Was that just for Corinth? What about love? 1 Corinthians 13, was that just for Corinth? We don't have to love because that was just... You see, we can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible we relegate to history and what other parts of the Bible we make here and now. It's a hope, man, this is good. Y'all are not with me. And this is, this is, this is actually good. I was like, I hope somebody in here doesn't believe in this stuff because otherwise I'm wasting all these good arguments. But let me just give you a couple of things. Listen, um, in chapter number 13, in verse number 1, um, you don't have to turn there, but you'll, you'll know it when I quote it. If I speak with the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, but I have not love. Remember that? 
That, it reads like a Hallmark card. When was the last time we stopped and said, what in the world is the tongue of angels? What, what did Paul mean? I want you to think about this because we're talking now about how this stuff just doesn't make sense. Do you understand? Let's ask it this way. What language does everybody speak in heaven? You think they speak English? The angels up there, good day, sir. You, you think they, they speak Japanese? Domo arigato. Ichi ni sanshigo. What about German? Uh, they don't speak any of the Latin language, the Germanic languages, the 21st century language. Heaven existed before human languages did, and they were talking. There's a heavenly language. There's a language that you and I in the natural don't know anything about. And so the idea that tongues always must be a known human language is defied even by 1 Corinthians 13, which says we can speak in, an, in the tongue of angels. That there are languages that aren't rooted in earth's history and the intellectual or verbal capacity of man. And so all I'm trying to do here is solidify this point. Tongues are weird. It's just weird, guys. And that's okay. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all. When I say it's weird, I'm just saying, if you're waiting for it to make sense, you'll probably not experience it. At some point in stepping into a lot of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to say, I will not let my demand to understand something cause me to miss something that I can't understand. Because there is so much in the kingdom of God that can be experienced but cannot be explained. And we are addicted to having to explain everything. All right, let me finish up here. I may take an extra five minutes tonight. Y'all cool with that? And at the end of the night, uh, I'm going to ask a couple of the elders to come up here, and uh, we're going to have a time of prayer for somebody hurting in our congregation tonight. So let me give you a couple things, and then if I can't finish, we'll finish next week. Tongues are strange. Second point, tongues are purposeful. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. I believe Paul is referring here primarily to a private prayer language that is not only referenced here, but it's referenced in other parts of Scripture. You've got Jude, verse number 20. It's a command. It says, But you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That tongues and private practice of tongues is a supernatural Holy Spirit-fueled phenomena that results in the edification of your soul. You've also got Ephesians 6.18 that, that addresses Christians, and it teaches us always be praying in the Holy Spirit. It's a different realm of prayer. It is nuanced. It is described as praying in the Spirit. You go to the book of Revelation, it talks about being in the Spirit in chapter number 1. And so we've got to realize that not every prayer is necessarily praying in the Spirit. It doesn't mean that that prayer is bad. It doesn't mean that the Spirit's off in you know, Tulsa somewhere while you're praying here in Atlanta. It just means there's an added level, a dynamic of, of intimacy that where you are so completely one with the Spirit that He is praying, but He's using your tongue, your teeth, your vocal cords, your mouth. You say, Jeff, I don't know if I believe that. Romans 8, verse number 26. That when we are overwhelmed 
and we don't have the right words. The Spirit himself makes intercession through us or for us with groanings that cannot be articulated. That is a description of praying in the Holy Spirit. All of us have probably had times where we just don't have the words to pray. We're under travail, we're groaning, we're moved, or we're burdened, and we don't have the right words. And it's in times like that where if we can yield, the Holy Spirit will begin to pray up from us and out of us. And friends, I'm going to tell you, some of the most intense times of praying in the Holy Ghost that I've ever had in my life is when I was out of English. I speak English and enough Spanish to be dangerous, but my Spanish wasn't working, my English wasn't working, and literally I could sit for an hour and pray in tongues, and my mind, as Paul said, would be unfruitful. I'd never know what I prayed, but I would come out of that prayer time, and I would be strengthened, and I would sense the power of God and the comfort of God and the truth of God. And there have been seasons to my own... um, Uh, detriment, I must confess, where I have gone maybe weeks without praying in the Holy Spirit, and I will find that God will say, you need to clear your calendar. You'll need to do, you need to clear everything. Why don't you go over to the house of prayer, stay there for four hours, and spend at least an hour over there praying in the Holy Spirit? And I'll say, amen. And I'll go do that, and I will come out an entirely different person. Now, friends, I'm, the only reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want those of you who don't know to absolutely know with certainty that there is an experience and a level of intimacy that all of us can step into that is, is at an increase of where we find ourselves right now. And God calls us into seasons of that. They usually come to us when nothing else will satisfy us anymore. You may have to come to the end of yourself. And we, in those times, the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. And then, uh, number three, chapter 14, verse 5. Here it is again. Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues. Paul was saying that to a church filled with some of the most spiritually immature people you'll find anywhere in your New Testament. The church, if you ever plant a church, I'm just going to give you some advice here. Don't call it the church of Corinth. I see Corinth, Corinth Presbyterian, Corinth Baptist, Corinth Church of God. I'm like, why'd you do that? That was the most jacked up church in the New Testament. Pick something different. But, but watch this. They were messing up all over the place. The big issue at the, at the church of Corinth was that they were apparently... That's why he wrote chapter 12, 13, and 14, because they had the gifts, but they didn't have the maturity or love to know how to use those gifts in the proper way. And Paul was telling them, here's how you use tongues. Here's what you don't do with tongues. Here's how you prophesy. Here's how you don't prophesy. Here's how you use these gifts when you're gathered together. But if there was ever a time for the leader of the church in the first century, the apostle Paul, to say, guys, these gifts are too messy. These gifts have resulted in confusion. These gifts are causing unbelievers to stumble. I'm going to tell you something. Stop using the gifts. That's what we would do. Paul said this. I want all of you to speak in tongues. And then Paul said this a little bit later. I thank God I speak in tongues more than any of you. Now, friends, that is amazing to me because you won't find a more theological person in the history of the church than the Apostle Paul. He was brilliant. He was educated. He was trained in in culture. He was trained in language. He was trained in history. 
He, he was um, an intellect like no other. He was an amazing mental giant. And yet this amazing mental giant, a holy man of God, said, yeah, I am a tongue-talking, Holy Spirit-filled individual, and I pray in tongues more than any of you folks. Why is that important? Because a lot of people say, well, tongues is for the babies. That's just a little baby gift. Really? Why did Paul tell you to pursue it? Why did Paul say, I want you to do this? Why did Paul say, I do it more than any of you? It's not an immature gift. That's an improper teaching. There were immature people using that gift at Corinth, but the abuse of a gift never invalidates the gift. The proper use of a gift validates the gift. The abuse of it never can invalidate it. What we need is not rejection of the gifts, but correction with the gifts. We need to say, we can't throw them out. We just need to learn to humble ourselves, look at the Scripture, and know how to use them properly. So the very last thing, and then we're, we're going to close. And I know some of you are wanting me to call for tonight and lay hands on you and everything. Uh, I, I'll just be honest with you. We're not going to do that tonight. What I would really rather you do is go home and hunger. You don't need me to lay your hand, my hands on you. Um, I don't even know that necessarily that would result. If you don't have the faith to receive, it doesn't matter. You can have 100 hands laid on you. But you've got to come to that place where you know that God is willing and that you are willing too. And so I would say go home and get willing, and you may never need anybody to lay hands on you. Um, there are times where we do that. Sunday mornings are a great opportunity. When we call people forward, sometimes we're laying hands on people, and they're receiving right there, right in the front. We don't flaunt it. We don't put it up on the screen. We don't advertise it on our website. And, and that's not what it's all about. It's about helping people move incrementally into deeper intimacy with Jesus, and tongues serves a part of that purpose. Here's the thing I want to say with tongues as we go, and we'll pick back up next week. Even at its best, the gift of tongues is limited. Chapter 14, verse 6, excuse me, verse 5 at the end. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. This is what Paul is teaching here. When the church is gathered together, it's better that we all exercise the gift of prophecy than we would all exercise the gift of tongues. Tongues at times is seen by some as their badge of honor. Yeah, I got filled with the Holy Spirit in 1985 and I've been talking in tongues since then. That's good. Thank God for it. But that's not the greatest thing that can ever happen to you. You see, tongues is good in as much as it builds us up. But when we come to a worship setting, when the church is gathered, the goal is not for me to be built up. The goal for me is how can I build up somebody else? How can I use any gift that I have? How can I serve somebody else? What was happening at Corinth is they were all standing up and they were flaunting the gift of tongues. They were showing themselves to be the most spiritual or the most anointing. Listen, even back then it was controversial. I mean, again, tongues is strange. Somebody stands up in the service and starts speaking in tongues, everybody's going to be looking. And in Corinth, they, they wore it as almost like a contest. That's why Paul wrote these chapters. He said, uh-uh, I would rather speak a handful of words in my native language that she can understand because those words will help her more than me standing up and going on for 10,000 words in tongues. So you're saying, Jeff, you just spent 50 minutes telling us it was important and you're finishing with saying it's not important? No, what I'm saying is this, it's not all important. 
My desire for you as a pastor at this point in our church's history is that you would find the freedom and the ability and the intimacy with God to pray in tongues in private as much as you can, as often as you can. It's like any other gift. You're going to grow in it the more you do it. It may start out with two syllables, and you'll second guess it like I did. And you'll, you may wrestle with it like I did. But you don't quit. You keep pressing in. You'll go through that phase where you say, was that God? Was that the Holy Spirit? Or was that me? Was that my tongue? Was that? And your mind will start trying to take over. Your intellect will try to seize it. And this is what you end up having to say. You say, Lord, I don't know if that was me or if that was you, but whatever I'm doing here, I'm doing it because I love you and this is for your glory. And God says, I can bless that honesty. I can bless you, my daughter. I can bless you, my son. But in the end, when we gather together, you won't find a lot of people running around here speaking in tongues when we gather together because we have a mature church that's not trying to show off their gifts. I would much rather you, when you're gathering here, press in and pursue prophecy, which Paul said was the best gift. Paul said prophecy builds up others. Tongues will primarily build up yourself. So he says, in love for one another, seek those gifts that edify others. Seek after prophecy.